0: There in verse 6, okay? So Titus chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 4. All right, now I think I'm correct, but tell me if I'm wrong. Is Alan on a missions trip in Mexico? All right. Are they, did they just leave or are they coming back soon? Oh, they just got back. To New Jersey or? Or to California? California, okay, good. I was going to say, I wonder if we'll see an appearance, but I guess not. All right. Uh, John, thank you for having me. And Alan, thank you for having me if you ever listen to this. Uh, it's good to be here. I don't know, some of you guys, I remember when you were very tiny. But I used to work with uh, the high school group, and I used to do a lot of stuff with the junior high, and that's where I know some of you from, but that feels like many years ago. And now you're all grown up, driving, and all that good stuff. All right, Titus chapter 2, are you guys there? All right. Hey, long time, no see. Titus chapter 2, look with me, if you would, at verse 15. Paul's writing, and he says, declare these things exhort and rebuke with all authority and now notice this let no one disregard you now turn with me if you would to 1st Timothy chapter 4 just a couple pages to the left 1st Timothy chapter 4 in verse 6 Paul says not to Titus this time but to Timothy if you put these things before the brothers you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine which you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, but rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of all acceptance, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Therefore, verse 11, command and teach these things. Let nobody despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, exhortation, and teaching. Don't neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Pray with me. God, I thank you for the chance to be with my friends tonight. Some of them I know, some of them perhaps I'll meet later, but as we gather together with the scriptures open, I pray that you'd open our hearts. Lord, there's powerful stuff in these verses that we've read, and I pray that we would see it, that we would be moved by its majesty, that we would be changed, transformed, renewed in our inner man, that we would live differently, that we would love differently because of what we talk about together tonight. Send your spirit among us, remove distraction, cause our hearts to be attentive, help my words to be clear. I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you're at all familiar with the Bible, you know, especially if you've read through the New Testament before, that the books of Timothy, first and second, and Titus are very similar in that the apostle Paul was writing to two dudes, Timothy, Titus, and Titus. And he was encouraging them in these letters about how they could be examples and leaders in the church. Now, as Paul's doing that, in verse 15 of chapter 2 of Titus, he says something very interesting. We read it together, but I'll remind you. Paul says, Titus 2.15, declare these things, rebuke with all authority, and let nobody disregard you. Now, literally, what that means when Paul says, let nobody disregard you, is don't let anybody write you off. Don't let anybody think you're not a big deal, you're just kind of a passing person. You have, Paul says to these guys, the authority of Christ on you. You're commissioned to be examples and leaders in the church. Don't let anybody write you off. Don't let anybody disregard you. And now what you should say, what I've said as I've read that before, is this? Well, that's nice, Paul. Don't let anybody disregard me. But how in the world, Timothy or Titus could have said, do I have control over whether or not somebody wants to disregard me? I mean, if somebody wants to write me off, what can I do to stop that? If somebody wants to say, Bijan, you're a loser, you're lame, I don't want to, how do I overcome that? And now here's the key. If you're taking notes, you'll want to jot this down. Paul says the way in which you as a Christian conduct yourself so that nobody disregards you, so that nobody writes you off, is by overwhelming your opponents by the consistency of your character and the beautiful integrity of your life. Overwhelming your opponents by the consistency of your character and the beautiful integrity of your life. So that if an enemy came to speak ill of you, pointing out that flaw or this flaw, they would have nothing to say. You overwhelm them, Paul says, by the consistency of your character, by the beautiful integrity of your life. That's what Paul said to Titus and to Timothy. And I think that's what Paul would say to us tonight. Why? Because most of us aren't pastors, but we're young people, we're in the church, we're called to be leaders and examples of our friends, our peers, family members, showing them what it looks like to live a Christian life. And lots of times there will be people who are hostile to the faith, people who want to disregard you, count you out, write you off. Paul says, don't let him. And you say, how, Paul? He says, the consistency of your character, the beautiful integrity of your life. So what I want to do in the time that remains is show you from these verses that we've read six points, you could say, six principles about what it looks like to have a consistent character, a life of integrity. Okay, six points. This is going to be kind of a real easy sermon to follow. Overwhelm your opponents by the consistency of your character, the beautiful integrity of your life. How do you do that? Six points that Paul gives. Are there more? Probably. But I only have a little bit of time. Six points. Are you with me? Tracking so far? All right, point number one. How do we do this? Paul would say, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. That comes right out of verses seven and eight of chapter four of 1 Timothy. Training ourselves for godliness. Now, if you're like me, one of the things that can be frustrating, now I realize some of you, this might be your first time ever at church. So you might experience a little bit this later tonight. Others of you have grown up in the church and you know exactly what I'm talking about. In the church, we speak a couple of languages and one of them is called Christianese, right? We speak and we use all these words that sometimes we don't understand and people who haven't been to church certainly don't understand, but we kind of know the lingo, we know the vocabulary. Godliness is one of those words. Hey man, just be godly. And what does that mean? Does that mean like I be like God? Does that mean I hang out with God? Like what in the world does God godliness mean? I'm going to try to give you a definition tonight. Hopefully it helps. If you're really interested in reading, you may want to jot down the title of this book. It's called The Godly Man's Picture, but it works for girls too. The Godly Man's Picture. It's the best book I've ever read on the subject. And in that book, the author, he's an old Puritan. He lived a long time ago, so his language is a little different than we speak today. He did not say dude or anything like that. But anyway, in the book, it's really phenomenal. And that book, the author gives a definition of godliness. I'm going to read it. It probably won't be that helpful, so don't worry about jotting it down. But I'm going to read it because I need to unpack it or explain it to you. Here's what he says. Godliness, this author mentions, is the sacred impression and workmanship of God in a man whereby from being carnal, he's made spiritual. Okay, so godliness is the impression of God on a person whereby you're changed from being carnal to spiritual. And you're saying, that dude was fluent in Christianese. That whole sentence didn't even make any sense. I'm going to unpack it a little bit. Okay, listen. I'm going to take that definition and I'm going to try to make it really kind of ground level. And here's how I'm going to do it. I watched some of you guys tonight, and you're all guilty of this. A lot of you are anyway. Whenever you come into a room and there's music playing Right, whether it's somebody like John playing a piano and singing, or maybe you hear speakers and you hear like some cool pop song or whatever, without even trying, unbeknownst to you, subconsciously we could say or reflexively, whenever you hear music, you start to move according to the beat, right? You start to move according to the tune. Some of you get really into it. Others of you are a little more reserved, and you're kind of like, I don't want you know, I'm, I don't get, I don't move, but you're kind of doing one of these, you know. All of us, why? Because we're in a context in which music is just surrounding us and without even thinking, we find ourselves moved by it. Okay, are you with me? You're in a context and there's something going on around you and you can't help but be moved by what you're experiencing. Okay, now here's my definition of godliness. You might want to write this down. Godliness is the characteristic Whereby a person begins to live in accord with the tune of heaven. I'll say it again Godliness is the characteristic whereby a man, a woman, a person begins to live in accord with the tune of heaven. What do I mean? When you walk into a room and you hear music almost without thinking, you just kind of, even the worst dancers among us, you're just kind of shaking the hips and doing the thing. Why? Because you're surrounded. You're, you're, you're just completely enveloped by something. You can't help be moved by it. And what I'm arguing is that godliness is much the same, but this time, the song is not outside of you. The song is within you. You have the tune of heaven in your own soul so that as you walk through life reflexively, subconsciously, without even thinking, you begin to walk through life, almost dance through life in a way that honors God, in a way that prioritizes the things God prioritizes, in a way that looks at things the way that God looks at them. Godliness is when the tune of heaven, the priorities of God's kingdom is a song in your own soul and almost without even trying, you begin to live according to it. That's why, notice, okay, listen. You see in the verses there, Paul says, train yourself for godliness, verse 7 why? Because bodily training, right, some of you guys are watching the Olympics, is a value in every way. You see those dudes on the rings and they like lift themselves up and like, you know, okay, bodily training, it's got some value, right? Gold medals and stuff, it's got some value. But its value doesn't compare to the value of godliness. Why? Not because bodily training isn't important, but because training yourself for godliness has not just temporal but eternal consequences. Why? Why? Because if godliness means living in accord with the tune of heaven, right now that song is within you. But one day, guess what? The song is going to be all around you. You're going to be with God, you're going to be in his kingdom. And the song that is presently inside believers as they walk through life is, according to the book of Revelation, going to be the background music for our entire eternal dwelling will be with a multitude of the angels who are singing God's song. So that when you get to heaven, it's almost as if you'd say, I've heard this song before. I've danced to this tune. I know what it's like to be godly. That's why the author of the book that I just mentioned said, godliness puts a man in heaven before his time. Godliness is the characteristic whereby you begin to live a heavenly life while you're on earth. It's almost like you're an angel among men. Now, I don't mean that literally. Don't think I mean that literally. But there's a heavenly quality to your life while you're on earth. Godliness puts a man in heaven before his time. Now, you say, okay, I get it. That's a kind of a helpful definition of what godliness is. But what does Paul mean when he says, train yourself for godliness? Good question. The word train could also be translated exercise. Now, some of you are still pretty young and you are just naturally fit. As you get older, exercise becomes, how shall we say, more necessary, more important. And what you realize is that when you get older and you decide it's time to train myself, it's time to exercise, a couple things can happen. Number one, you say, I need to go to the gym. I'm going to get a gym membership. So you get your gym membership, I'm going to the new YMCA or the whatever gym, and I'm really excited, I'm just going to be pumped and jacked, and I'm going to look like Mike Krauser, and it's just going to be awesome, right? That's what you say, he's not here, so that's your kind of your goal, your motive, so Monday morning rolls around. Your alarm is set. You're getting up at 5 in the morning to go to the gym because that's what you do. You're really serious about it. And you pop up right out of bed. 5 a.m., you go to the gym, you do your workout, or mom or dad drive you. I realize most of you don't drive. Whatever, just it's an analogy. And you go to the gym and you work out. And what? It was great. It was really fun. Yes, I'm awesome, etc. Tuesday morning comes around. And you go to the gym, but you're a little less enthusiastic about it. Wednesday morning comes. A lot less enthusiastic about it. Thursday morning, you hit the snooze and it's over. It's just finished. No more gym. Why? Because although you desire a good thing, you lack the willpower necessary to accomplish performing that good thing. Right? The reason why people struggle in their Christian life and they don't see godliness is not because they don't desire to honor God. I would bet that most of you, if I talk to you, not maybe not all of you, but most of you would say, I want to honor God. I want to, like, kind of live a godly life. But the reason we don't see it is not because we lack the desire, but our willpower, our ability to get up at five in the morning, so to speak, it's not strong enough. So how do you fix it? How do you change that? The answer is by taking our desires, right? We desire many things and letting the best desire win, okay? I don't know if that makes sense, but I'm gonna unpack it and it will in just a second, okay? Think with me. I personally, some of you guys will really resonate with this. I love Starbucks Java chip ice cream. Anybody that you've been there, done that, right? It's pretty incredible. Starbucks Java chip ice cream, just out of this world, right? They're gonna serve it in heaven, I'm sure of it. It's just, okay, really good. Now, let's say that I say to myself, you know, Bijan, Starbucks java chip ice cream is really good, but you just, you know, shouldn't have it. It's just too much ice cream is not good for you, you know, blah, 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 you shouldn't eat it. So I say, okay, I'm not going to have it anymore. But it so happens that somebody in my family goes to the grocery store, they know I love it, they buy it, and it's in the freezer. But I've I've already said to myself, I'm not going to eat it, I'm not going to have it, I'm just, I'm over it, and I know it's in the freezer. How long do you think my willpower is going to keep me from eating the Starbucks java chip ice cream? I'll tell you, like 10 minutes. That's about all I've got before I'm there just pounding it with two spoons, right? Why? Because I have this desire to not eat the ice cream, but I also have this other desire that I've just learned is a lot stronger, namely the desire to eat the ice cream. The greatest desire always wins. Now, let's flip it. Let's say that I love Starbucks java chip ice cream. And let's also say that I happen to be a track and field athlete who is competing for the gold medal in the London Olympics for, we'll say, the 400 meter race. I desire two things, the gold medal and Starbucks java chip ice cream. Now, in that instance, the desire that I have for the gold medal and all the effort and the energy that I'm putting into getting that medal is probably going to be strong enough to keep me from eating the ice cream. Why? Not because I don't desire the ice cream. I just desire the gold medal way more. You see that? It's not because I don't want the java chip ice cream. It's because I want the gold medal even more. Now, if that analogy made any sense to you, Let's bring it back to our sermon. How do you train yourself in godliness? Willpower alone is not going to do enough. You need to actually begin to desire the pleasure of God, the glory of God, the honor of God more than we desire these lesser things. Now, I know when I say gold medal versus ice cream, that's kind of an obvious example And some of you might be saying, yeah, but how do I foster that desire for God? How do I grow in my inclinations to want to please God? How does that desire become stronger than all these other desires that I have? To please my friends or to et cetera, et cetera. Bible reading, prayer, youth group, all the simple Christian things. It's exercise, right? There's nothing glamorous about exercise, but it's important. Consistent exercise and spiritual things will help you train yourself for godliness. Living in accord with the tune of heaven, a heavenly life on earth, whereby you desire godly things to grow in godliness over and against these other things. That's just point number one. The good news is none of the points, other points are that long. Are you with me? Point number one, train yourself for godliness. Point number two is really short. Point number two, if you're still taking notes, is set the believers an example. Set the believers an example. This comes to us from 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. Notice what Paul says. This is a verse that I'm sure many of you have memorized at some point or another in your own journey. Paul says, let nobody despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example. And then he gives a couple of ways that we do that. Here's what I want you to see. Paul says, set the believers an example. And I say to you tonight, set the believers an example. But what I'm really wanting you to understand is that you do not need to have a formal position of authority in the church to be an example of what it means to be a Christian. Okay, do you hear that? You do not need to have a formal position of authority in a church to be an example. If you're a person, which all of you qualify for, you can be an example. Because it means on any given day, your siblings, your mom or dad, your grandparents, your friends, etc., are looking at the way that you live your life. And you, if you choose to be, can be an example of what it means to follow and honor Christ. Not when you're older, not when somebody calls you pastor, not when you have kids. You're an example already. So set one. Okay? That's point number two. I told you it was a lot shorter. Point number three don't neglect your gifts. Don't neglect your gifts. This comes to us from 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 14. We can look at it. Paul says, don't neglect the gift that you have. And then he describes the way in which Timothy got his gift. Don't neglect your gifts. Now, here's what I really want you to hear. Have any of you guys just maybe uh, nod your heads. You've heard of people talk about spiritual gifts, right? You kind of heard about that? Here's what typically happens in the church. Thank you for the nods, by the way. That's very helpful. Uh, here's what happens, okay? This is like kind of, you know, I'm not dogging it, but this is kind of how I grew up. I was always told by people, find out what your spiritual gift is. Do you know what your spiritual gift is? And if you've thought about these things, you know that the gifts are listed in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, kind of 14, and then some people think also in Ephesians uh, chapter four. Now, I would read the list, right? I'd open my Bible, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and be like, which one's my gift? And if you read the list, they're actually kind of abstract. It's like mercy, healings, teachings, prophecy, wisdom. And you're looking at it like, healings, do I have healings? Brother, get better. I don't have that one. Uh, You know, and you're kind of just looking at them like, which gift do I have? Now, here's what I want to say to you tonight do I think that that's a bad question to ask? What gift do I have? No, I think it's a fine question. But what I found is that a lot of people spend so much time asking the question, which gift do I have? That they don't just use their gifts. Right? They're so busy trying to name their gifts, they're never using their gifts. What I'm saying to you is just use them. Well, you say, Bijan. if I don't know what they are, how can I use them? That's a very good question. I'm going to try to give you an answer. If you're really interested in this stuff, you'll want to jot down Romans chapter 1. Okay, it's right in the beginning. I believe it's, well, yeah, I, don't, I didn't jot it down. I think it's verse 4, it might be verse 7 of Romans chapter 1, but it's right in there. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, that the purpose of spiritual gifts is to strengthen the faith of other believers. Okay, do you hear that? The purpose of spiritual gifts is to strengthen the faith of the Christians around you. So now listen, I'm gonna to read to you a quote, and it's actually, it's, it's a little long, but it's easy to follow. So as I read it, just tune in, and then I'll explain it. But I want you to keep in mind, It's not naming our gifts, it's using our gifts, and the point of gifts is to strengthen other people's faith. Now listen to what this pastor says. I think it would be fair to say that you should not bend your mind too much trying to label your spiritual gift before you use it. That is, don't worry about whether you can point to prophecy or teaching or wisdom, etc., and say, that's my gift. The way to think about it is actually this. The reason we have spiritual gifts is so that we can strengthen other people's faith. Now, here is somebody whose faith is in jeopardy. How can I help him? Then, do or say what seems most helpful. And if that person is helped, then you've used one of your gifts. We must not get hung up on naming our gifts. The thing to get hung up on is, are we doing what we can to strengthen the faith of the people around us? Now, does that make sense? I don't know. I hope it does. But here's what I'm saying very simply. If you want to try to name your gifts, good. But far better is using them. Well, how do I do that? Find areas of weakness. Find people who are in need of being strengthened And then do the thing that seems to you most helpful. And I bet you'll find out what your gifts are. Don't worry about saying, I have this or I have that. Just find weakness. Try to bring strength. And as you do, when you do, you'll be not neglecting your gifts. They think so. All right? Are you with me? Don't neglect your gifts, Paul says. Titus, I mean to Timothy. Look with me if you would. Number four. Point number four, let your speech be sound. Let your speech be sound. Now, forgive me, we actually have to turn to Titus for this one. Titus chapter two and verse eight. Paul's speaking and he's talking about how young men, but I think it applies to all of us for other reasons that I could show you. Paul says in verse 8 of Titus 2, sound speech, which cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Now, sound speech, that's kind of a weird phrase, right? How do you have sound speech? Like, isn't all speech a sound? Okay, that's not what it means. Sound speech The the word sound literally means health or life-giving, right? If somebody says to you, that's sound advice, they don't mean it's noise. They mean it's healthy advice. They mean it's wise advice. Paul's saying, let your speech be sound or let your speech be wholesome, life-giving. To say it differently, when you talk, do people feel Alive or torn apart, defeated? When you speak, do people feel like they're being built up or they're being torn down? Paul's saying, Let your speech be sound. Now, I'm not much older than you guys, but I am a little bit older than you. And I'm sure that if the leaders came up here, they would also say the same thing. The older I get, the more important I realize how wonderful or how deadly the words I say can be, right? My words have the power literally to build up or to tear down. It's really significant that we are a people who speak soundly. When we say, Bijan, is there a way that we can kind of think about those things? Yeah, there is. In Matthew chapter 12, if you want to jot it down, Jesus says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, To say it differently, what's in your heart is shown by what comes out of your mouth. So, if you find yourself struggling with your speech, and I don't just mean profanity, I don't mean just dropping F-bombs, I don't mean just that, that's possible, but I also mean, is your tone, when you talk to your parents, one in which you're basically saying by your tone that they're the stupidest people in the world, right, that's speech, Do we speak to our siblings in such a way that they always feel really tiny and really stupid? Right? That's our speech. Not wholesome. It's not life-giving. And if Jesus says it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks, my question to you and the question that I have to ask myself is, what's going into my heart? Or to say it differently, don't be surprised if your speech is terrible, if You listen to junk music, you watch junk movies, and the only people you hang around with are people who speak degradingly about themselves, about other people, etc. Just how it works. What goes in comes out. So if our speech is not sound, if it's not wholesome, if it's not life giving, according to Jesus, it's probably because there's a lot of junk going into our heart. So perhaps check on that. Perhaps look into that, that our speech might be sound. Number five, point five. Study and discuss the scriptures with others. Study and discuss the scriptures with others. Now, here's what's really interesting. This comes to us from 1 Timothy 4, verse 13. Okay, we had to flip back to 1 Timothy. Paul says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Now, what's interesting is Paul doesn't say to Timothy, Timothy, read your Bible a lot. Now, I think reading your Bible is really important, right? I'm sure you guys hear that constantly from Alan and from our former friend Andy. He's gone, right? He's he's already in California, right? Our former friend Andy. You hear that a lot. Read your Bible. You should. But notice what Paul says. Not wake up in the morning and have quiet time but be much engaged in the public reading of Scripture. What does that mean? Be at a place where multiple people are centered on Bible discussion. Whether that's teaching, like we're doing here at Impact, or whether that's going to church with your family or your friends, or whether that's sitting at a Starbucks and talking about the Bible, or going to camp and taking a walk and discussing a Scripture with a friend, or whatever the case might be, notice what Paul's saying Not read the Bible on your own, although you should. What Paul's saying is make sure that when you're interacting with other people, the Bible is present. Now, I can't fully explain this, but I can tell you I've experienced it. A large part of the growth in my own life as a Christian comes from this idea that I went to church, that I met with friends or met with youth pastors at Starbucks and we just opened our Bibles and just talked about it, right? I see things in the text when I read the Bible on my own. I'm able to see a whole lot more when brothers and sisters or pastors or leaders or whatever are opening the Scriptures and publicly engaging in what God's saying through his word. It's hard for me to explain why that is. I just know it's the case. So I would encourage you, be much in places where the Bible is the center of discussion. Think about ways that you might be able to incorporate that even with your friends or neighbors or people at school, etc. Last point, you guys have been extremely patient. Last point. Number six, hope in Jesus and be humble. Hope in Jesus and be humble. This comes to us from verse 10 of chapter four. Paul says, for this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Now, Paul's saying we work, we strive, we toil. Why? Because our hope is set on the living God. Now, that phrase, living God, doesn't just mean the God who's alive, right? That's true, but it's a reference to Jesus' resurrection. Jesus died but he's alive. The living God is the resurrected Christ. What's Paul saying? We strive, we labor, we toil, and we look to ourselves. No, we look to Christ. We look to the living God. (laughs) Paul realizes that Jesus, not himself, is the hero of the story. Jesus is the main attraction. Jesus is the star. He, Paul, you, I, we all have supporting roles. We're in the story, but we're trees. You know the people, like the little kids who get a part in the big play, but they're like a tree? Well, I mean, look, I'm a tree. You know, kind of, that's you and I. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the star. And Paul says, I do all of these things. I labor, I toil, I strive. But my hope is in him. He's the real deal, he's the main thing. Now, here's why that's significant. As you go through life, you will find that you are a very bad God for yourself. Right? You're not a good hero. I'm not a good hero. I need a hero. I need a savior. I'm not a savior. But if and when I allow myself to become the big kahuna in my own mind, right, if I think the world revolves around Captain Me Planet and I'm just kind of like, wow, Bijan's awesome sort of thing, you know what happens? I start to become really ugly from the inside, right? Because when people turn their focus in on themselves and make themselves the main thing, you develop kind of a monstrous ego Right, Lord of the Rings, Gollum. Okay, that's what the ring kind of did to him, right? Just this, you know, it's funny, but when you really look at, I mean, it's pathetic. It's really sad, and I think that's part of what Tolkien was trying to show us in that story, is this is what happens when a person gets so into themselves and become this monstrous kind of thing. What Paul's saying is all that we do in life is focused on, centered on the fact that Jesus Christ is the hero of the story. He's the point of it all. He's majesty, he's glory, he's beauty, and I'm not. But you know what happens? Some people say when they hear me talk like that, they say, are you advocating, especially to these kids, that they have a low self-esteem? No. I'm saying that when you realize that you're not the hero of the story, that Jesus is the hero of the story, then and only then, you become truly human. You become who you were actually meant to be. You actually are able to fulfill the role that God has called you to in life. Now, here's what I mean by that. Have any of you guys ever heard of, maybe you've probably been to the Metropolitan Museum in New York City. It's this art museum that's got some of the most crazy, beautiful things that you've ever seen, right? The Met, they call it. A number of weeks ago, there was an ad campaign on the subways in New York. The Met was trying to advertise to bring people in to come and see the art and pay money and all that sort of thing. So they were running some ads. And one of the ads they had on the subway was really intriguing. Probably, you, I don't know, maybe you've heard of, maybe not, a comedian named Seth Myers. I've never heard of him before. He might be awesome, he might be terrible. I'm not endorsing him. Okay? You hear that? But this comedian, Seth Myers, and he was part of the ad campaign for the Met. And there was a line on the subway in which Seth Meyers, the comedian, said, I often think there is nothing more beautiful than a well-written joke. Then I go to the Met and remember that I'm an idiot. What's he saying? This guy who's a comedian often thinks the most beautiful thing in the world is a well-written joke. Now question, why does he think that? Because he's a comedian right he begins to perceive beauty and perceive the world in relation to himself but then when he goes to a place where he's surrounded by glory he realizes oh i guess i'm not that amazing it's good for us to be surrounded by glory it's good for us to see something more beautiful than ourselves What Paul's saying is we have that in Christ. We see that in him. And only when you make Jesus the hero of your story, when you look to him, when you see what he's done for you, only then are you saved from this kind of monstrous ego. And are you able to be truly human? Are you able to be the person, the woman, the man that God is calling you to be? Jesus is the hero, not us. Which leads us then to, finally, being humble. Uh, I'm sure that at least some of you are super excited for The Hobbit to come out Christmas time. I'm pretty excited to say it mildly. If you've read the books, this will sound familiar to you. I'm not giving anything away, okay? But at the end of the book, The Hobbit, the main character whose name is Bilbo, is having a conversation with Gandalf, who is sort of like Dumbledore in Harry Potter, for those of you who are Harry Potter connoisseurs, okay? So Bilbo is talking to Gandalf, and basically in the story, again, this is not a spoiler, but basically in the story, Bilbo has lots of adventures, right? Lots of interesting encounters, and there's dangers, and there's perils, and there's treasure, and there's all this crazy good stuff. And it seems like as the story goes on, Bilbo is always in the right place at the right time and just has enough luck and somehow manages to escape all the evil and all the danger and he gets to the end and he's talking to Gandalf and Bilbo's saying yeah you know all these things they just happened to work out for me Now, here's what Gandalf says surely you don't disbelieve the prophecies because you had a hand in bringing them about yourself you don't really suppose do you that all your adventures and escapes were managed by luck just for your sole benefit? Now listen to what Gandalf says. You're a very fine person, Bilbo Baggins, and I'm very fond of you, but you are only a little fellow in a wide world after all. You hear that? Very fond of you, but you're just a little fellow in a wide world. What's Gandalf saying? I know it seems like you've done awesome. I know it seems like you're the man. But realize that there's bigger things going on. There's things outside of your control. It's just a little dude in a big world. And when you see that, when you know that, then you're free. You're free from the monstrous ego. You're free from the expectations of others. You're free to hope in Jesus and to be humble. He's the main thing. He's the hero. He's the savior. Us. Little guys, little gals in a very big but beautiful world, in which Christ is the king. So those are the six points. They have the feel almost of a list, advice, etc. Now, the last thing I want to say, and then we'll be done. I know it's been, uh, you guys have been very attentive. Some of you will listen to a sermon like that, and you'll say, "Oh,." That's a lot of stuff. It's a lot to do. I know, but now look at, if you would, verse 15 of chapter four, if your Bibles are still open. Paul says to Timothy, practice these things. He doesn't say be perfect at these things. He says practice them. Immerse yourself in them so that all will see your progress. What's he saying there? Timothy, I know I'm asking a lot of you and I want you to practice them. What's practice? It's doing something over and over again until it becomes more of a habit. This step doesn't come perfectly right away. It takes time. So what I've said to you, what I've shared with you tonight, it's not something that happens overnight. It's the result of a long walk with Christ. But what I want you to see is that as you practice these things, you will make progress. You absolutely will. But sometimes you don't see it, right? Which of you have ever looked in the mirror and said, hey, check it out, I'm getting taller, right? It's just not how it works, except for her. (laughs) But I'm not gonna point. We don't see our own growth, but we're growing. Practice these things. You're not gonna do it perfectly. I'm not gonna do it perfectly. But practice them. Be about them and you will grow. There will be progress according to Christ and according to his spirit that lives within you.